Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Very excited to have our next guest now. I'd like to welcome in Dr. Dan Skowronski, who is Chief Scientific Officer at Eli Lilly and Company. And Eli Lilly, of course, doing a lot of work on antibody therapies on COVID. So welcome, Dr. Dan, and thank you. First of all, explain to us where you're at when it comes to the antibody work. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on today. Uh, we have a, a monoclonal antibody called bamlanivimab, uh, which is a, a synthetic way of, of boosting a person's immune system. It's currently uh, authorized uh, by the FDA under emergency use, and it's available in many countries around the world for the early treatment of COVID-19. So these are patients who are diagnosed with COVID-19. They're still early in their disease course. They're not hospitalized, but they have risk factors such as age or obesity or, or hypertension or cardiovascular disease that would suggest they could have dangerous outcomes. And what we've shown here is that uh, uh, this drug can reduce the risk that they end up uh, being hospitalized um, or, or worse. So Doctor, where in terms of the United States, uh, where are we with your drug here in the US and what is your time frame for you know, really getting it fully out to the market? Yeah, it's uh, it's already widely available. Patients should know that, and, and doctors should know that. Um, uh, about a million doses uh, have been shipped uh, yeah. already. Uh, most healthcare institutions have it, um, but it's still a, a little tricky for patients and physicians to find it. The, the U.S. government, who's in charge of distributing it, uh, has has created resources. Uh, one is called Combat COVID, so combatcovid.hhs.gov. If patients click on that, they can see uh, Infusion Locator which will actually show them near their house where they can go to get it. So again, it's for patients who have just gotten diagnosed with COVID and, and they're high risk and, and worried. Um, uh, this is a, a treatment option that is available to them. So how does it work? Is it a one-time thing? Do they continue to go back for more? And is there any data on what happens if it doesn't work or if it works in a different way than you're anticipating? Yeah, uh, thank you. It's, it's a one-time infusion. Uh, so the the infusion now, as of today, it, we've just uh, quickened it. So it, it only takes uh, it can take as little as 16 minutes. Uh, in some circumstances, it could take more. Um, but the patient is infused with this medicine uh, just that one day uh, for that amount of time. Usually, the the physicians uh, will uh, observe the patient and make sure they don't have any any adverse events um, for up to an hour after they administer the drug, and and then the patient goes home. Um, in a, a recent phase three trial of a, a slightly different version of this, which was a, a combination of two such monoclonal am- antibodies, bamlanivimab and etisevimab, we saw that for patients like this, we reduced hospitalizations by 70%, uh, which is just incredible to think about. If, if this were widely deployed, if all the patients that could benefit uh, uh, got this, uh, we could have 70% less people in, in hospitals. We also completely eliminated deaths. So on the placebo arm, unfortunately, 10 out of about 500 people died, um, which is consistent with what we know about COVID. It's dangerous and and people do die. On the treatment arm, zero uh, deaths. So that's hugely encouraging. Imagine if we can reduce hospitalizations by 70% and reduce significantly, eliminate even uh, um, 
the vast majority of, of deaths. Uh, we could really turn what is the biggest public health crisis of our lifetimes into a disease that's much more manageable. So I, I just see these monoclonal antibodies in combination with vaccines, um, uh, which you know create immunity in advance of getting the disease. This gives you immunity that helps you treat the disease. Um, that those two things t- together, you know, we, we can really turn the corner on Doctor, this. Doctor, do you have to be sick already to get this, or can you get it without being sick? So right now, it's it's authorized as a treatment, so, so that's for people who are sick. We also, last week, disclosed another phase three trial for the same drug, but now used in people who aren't sick yet. We went into uh, nursing homes where you have a very vulnerable population, and, and we went to nursing homes where they're starting to have an outbreak, and we tested to see whether we could use this prophylactically. And what we, we found is a, a very significant reduction, an 80% reduction for nursing home residents uh, uh, getting sick. So in other words, giving to them in advance of, of illness prevented many of them from, from getting sick. Wow. And again, uh, uh, no deaths in the people who, who got the treatment um, versus uh, a number of deaths in people who unfortunately got placebo in this trial. So it, it can work in that scenario. We, we have that data, which is exciting, but that isn't yet authorized by the FDA. We're, we're taking that forward for their review soon. So, doctor, I'm getting the sense that it's it's not fully in the marketplace. That there are some bottlenecks. Is that is that a correct? Am I correct in inferring that? And and what what do we need? What do you need to do to get it fully distributed? Yeah, thank you. There's uh, it's distributed. It's out there on on the shelves of hospitals and infusion centers and healthcare facilities around the country. Um, there's a couple of, of misconceptions and a couple of bottlenecks that are slowing down patient use. The, f- the first is that patients and their doctors often don't know about it. It's relatively new, um, and uh, information hasn't been fully disseminated, so we're, we're trying to work with the federal government to, to make sure the word gets out in the right way. Um, that's important because people, if they wait until they're really sick and hospitalized, uh, this is no longer an appropriate treatment. So the window of intervention is still early, and, and that takes some thinking to say, okay, I have COVID-19, I may not feel awful yet, uh, but I know I have these risk factors. So, so that's the first step is awareness. The second is actually getting an infusion, which is you know something that happens all the time for cancer patients or patients with autoimmune diseases, but it's new for infectious diseases. And so hospitals and healthcare facilities have been setting up around the country purpose-made infusion centers just for COVID-19. And in some health systems, these are just running uh, nonstop and infusing patients with, with good benefit. And then finally, is, is there has been some skepticism, I think. This was initially authorized based on phase two data. It was just a few hundred patients. Now we have phase three data that involves thousands of patients that just came over the last couple of days and uh, uh, absolutely reinforces uh, all the benefits we, we saw in, in phase two. So that's exciting, and I, I think with that, um, more and more doctors will, will decide to make this uh, standard care for their patients. Doctor, we're pretty much out of time, but can you give us a, a quick idea of the cost and whether it's covered by insurance? Yeah, so one of the uh, principles that we followed is uh, in our discussions with the U.S. government, we've asked that this should be free for patients. So that is the cost. It's, it's zero. People don't have to pay for the, the drug itself. Um, sometimes there is a, a price to pay for, for the doctor seeing the patient or diagnosing them or giving them an infusion. Uh, all of that should be covered by, fully covered by, by insurance or, or the government. So, so patients shouldn't be inhibited by, by cost here. That's, that's not an issue. 
All right, I think I might, might be running out to my nearest it healthcare provider. <laughs> sounds here. like I mean, you should hold be getting this. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm a little confused here. All right, doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Dan Skoronsky, uh, he is chief scientific officer for Eli Lilly and Company, talking to us about uh, one of their therapeutics that is proving to be extraordinarily effective. And Vani, it just seems like, why wouldn't you, I guess, at this point? Yeah, I mean, I guess you'd have to be a little bit brave to yep. go for it. But at the same time, it doesn't sound like there's much of a downside. Yeah. So certainly, I guess, you know, for those folks that do test positive, here is a, a great, great uh, treatment for them. So that's uh, good news. Well, it is our great pleasure right now to introduce the Honorable David Burt, who is Premier of Bermuda, possibly the best job in the whole universe. <laughs> uh, Premier Burt, thank you so much for joining and uh, hope everybody is safe and well in Bermuda. I know that Bermuda was one of the places that managed to really control and restrain the, this this horrible, horrible coronavirus. And for a very, very long time, numbers were tiny. Can you give us an update on that? And how many people actually moved to Bermuda to work from home? Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I know that we had, and it's a pleasure to be here with you and your listening audience. I know that we had over 500 applications of persons who wanted to come to the country. Um, I think we had about 350 who actually arrived on island uh, thus far. Uh, certainly, there's people who are in and out. Uh, and in Bermuda right now, I think, as our latest report last night, we had uh, 29, oh, sorry, 27 active cases of the coronavirus, uh, three persons in hospital. There was a little bit of an outbreak, uh, but that much has been controlled. And I think over the last week, uh, we've possibly, I think we've reported only one uh, new uh, local case of the coronavirus. So I Amazing. think we are in a good place. Uh, we have, we are, Bermuda is the fourth most tested country on the planet. We do <laughs> testing here. Um, we do, we test, test and test again. So, Premier, I am a, a huge fan of Bermuda. been there several times and I greatly look forward to coming back. Give us a sense of uh, how the pandemic on a global scale has impacted tourism for Bermuda. How have you uh, responded as well? Oh, well, Paul, the pandemic has certainly had a great impact on tourism. Um, and recently, of course, with the flare-ups that we've seen in the United States, the United Kingdom, the new policies, the Biden administration, et cetera, um, it's an exceedingly uh, difficult period, no question about it. Uh, but this is our uh, traditional low season in tourism. Uh, so we are just taking the time to recalibrate. But we have events that are scheduled. Uh, we have an international sailing regatta that's going to be taking place for Bermuda in March, Sail GP. And we, are, uh, we have off-sites, which are happening from um, you know, companies in the United States who want to still, you know, travel and have their persons in a safe environment and have those things off-site. So our tourism industry is focusing more on the niche markets, the long-term tourists, the people who are working uh, from Bermuda. So in that case and instance, uh, that's, that's how we are managing to recover. And I think that following that, there's going to be um, other chances for us. If the Biden administration extends the no-sale uh, policy, there are some cruise lines that are looking to uh, possibly launch their cruises from here in Bermuda, um, which is very close to the United States, of course, out of the New York market, and people can uh, cruise from here. Yeah, we just got word literally in the last six minutes that Canada is stopping airline service to sun destinations, including the Caribbean and Mexico. So obviously there will be stop and starts with countries, you know, banning people from traveling or banning people from entry and so on. So there'll be a lot to catch up on in terms of growth and GDP and so on. How concerned are you that Bermuda will suffer? And is there any way of stimulating or relieving the economy in, in the sense of pandemic relief like we're looking at in the United States here in the mainland? 
Well, we've implemented a very aggressive program of stimulus. Uh, so when the pandemic first started, uh, we provided a generous stimulus to persons, to businesses, to make sure that they can continue uh, to uh, survive and making sure that we gave direct money uh, to uh, persons. Our, our funding was at $500 per week. Um, we made sure that we continued that for persons who needed those fundings. But in the issues of uh, stimulus uh, from, the, from Bermuda, what we're doing is we're making sure that we take this opportunity to uh, establish leadership in many things. And so we are continuing to build on our digital asset industry here in Bermuda, which has seen a growth, uh, which is working. We're continuing to attract big names to our shores. And uh, as we see what's happening now with the markets and the, um, the attention that is being paid to decentralized finance, uh, Bermuda, we are very fortunate that we have been preparing ourselves regulatory and regulation-wise for this for a number of years. And now it's coming to the fore. So we are very excited of what the future may hold. So, Premier, when I think of the economics of Bermuda, I think of the insurance industry long had a, a strong uh, presence uh, on the island of Bermuda. But I know you've been also uh, developing crypto and blockchain technology and trying to attract fintech to the island. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, fintech has been going well. Um, we're building off of our insurance base. Insurance is going well, and the combination of insurance um, and fintech. So, I mean, we are have exchanges that have had licenses so far, including Bittrex Global, who's been using our regulatory framework uh, to launch tokenized stocks, and so people can trade uh, stocks uh, 24-7. Uh, we have um, other big names like Circle and uh, IG International getting licensed. We have people in our uh, sandbox, uh, for, uh, companies like Stable House and Cross Towers and Market Makers, and we also have insurance market innovators such as NIAMS, and we have other insurers that are coming uh, to offer insurance insurance uh, for digital assets as well. So we are uh, well positioned, I think, to take advantage of the, the attention that is now being paid to the coming decentralized finance boom. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Why did you decide to do that? Are there risks in a country sort of embracing one industry so much? Well, I wouldn't say it's one industry. Bermuda is a well-regulated financial services uh, uh, jurisdiction. And so we are well known for our high regulatory standards. Bermuda is one of the, there's only two countries in the world that have regulatory equivalents when it comes to insurance with both the United States and the European Union, and that's Bermuda and Switzerland. So we're not a fly-by-night jurisdiction. We have very high standards. So the risks are managed appropriately. But at the same point in time, when you look at the way that finance is changing, we recognize that there is an opportunity opportunity. And we want to be a place where companies can innovate in a well-regulated space with a respected global regulator so we can bring uh, innovations to the markets. And we have companies right now under our regulatory regime that are able to offer, you know, the trading of tokenized stocks 24-7 happening today. So we are, um, we are certainly pushing, I wouldn't say pushing the boundaries, but we are allowing companies to come here and to go ahead and to offer innovation to the world. Talk to us about the the insurance business. Where how has it evolved on the island? Again, you know, I've always thought of it, you know, it's such a big, big presence for your economy. It's been such a, a good business and a good environment. Talk to us about the state of the insurance business on Bermuda these days. 
Uh, state of the insurance business, the insurance business is uh, growing. Certainly, there's been a lot of new capital that has come into insurance uh, due to certainly the pandemic and the losses of which some insurance companies have seen. We've seen an incredible flow of new capital Bermuda. We've seen new companies that have set up to take advantage of this new capital that is flowing into the market. And we're also seeing innovation, which is happening uh, through uh, distributed ledger technologies and other things to make insurance even more efficient than it has been through the ins- the innovations that the Bermuda market has bought to the global insurance industry. So it's certainly growing, um, and we continue to see that growth with companies setting up here and looking how to ensure not only the risk of today, but the risk of tomorrow in the new markets which are emerging. So how do you attract companies and, and outfits? What is your pitch in terms of, I don't know, taxation or, you know, things that might be uh, attractive? Other than the obvious, I mean, who wouldn't want to work in Bermuda, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's very strange. Our calling card is actually our regulation. That is our calling card. Our calling card is to be able to work with a regulator that you can have conversations with and speak to. Our regulator is very tough. But how However, there is the opportunity to innovate here in Bermuda, and that's what it is. People always will point to the tax argument, but for the, a large number of our insurers here in Bermuda, they elect to be U.S. taxpayers. They prefer to access the regulatory clarity and the regulatory um, certainty that they have here in Bermuda, dealing with one regulator versus multiple different regulators at the federal level and the state level and other places. What's the In terms of uh, tourism, what percentage of your, your economy is tourism here. Uh, tourism and uh, from a foreign exchange earning basis only represents 5% of the country's foreign exchange earnings. Most of our foreign exchange earnings come through international business. Oh, that's interesting. So and and so what what are you expecting However, for your higher tourism season? has a larger size uh, tourism has a larger size for employment on the island, but when we're talking about foreign currency exchange, a lot of that comes from international business. Bermuda's okay. high season typically in tourism is uh, the uh, summer months, so we call it from um, April uh, to October. And just real quick, Premier, are there commercial flights coming in or, or most of the people coming into the island on uh, you know special chartered or private airplanes? There are commercial flights coming in every day from New York City. Um, uh, we have flights coming in from uh, Europe as well. Uh, the fact is that Bermuda, now that the Biden administration has in, um, implemented uh, testing regimes, but Bermuda has had those in place since we reopened our airlines, where we require people to have pre-tests. We test people on arrival. We test people four days after arrival, eight days after arrival, 14 days after arrival. We test people on the way out. So we have, as I said, the most tested country in the world. And that's the reason why we have been able able to maintain our, um, our connection to the world, maintain our niche tourism, which is taking place, been able to host um, events from our shores because we well, are confident in our testing. Premier, I can promise you, you're going to see a, a pale kid wandering around the streets of Bermuda <laughs> next week. And Paul, I'll see you in two weeks. And that's right. Okay. The Honorable David Burt, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Premier Burt is the Premier of the Government of Bermuda, located obviously in Hamilton, Bermuda. A uh, very interesting story about uh, what's going on on the island of Bermuda. It's uh, it's not just tourism. It is insurance. Uh, it is diversified financial services. It is fintech, cryptocurrency. Mm. So interesting developments yeah. there on the island of Bermuda. And again, I am a huge fan. Look forward to going back. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. Today, we're joined by Aaron Brown. He's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, also the former chief risk manager at AQR Capital Management based in New York City. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us here. So as we take a look at this day trading phenomenon, the GameStops, the 
AMCs of the world. First of all, are you surprised that a hedge fund, the size and the expertise of Melvin Capital Management with billions under uh, assets under management, are you surprised that they were hurt so badly at the beginning of this? You know, uh, no, I'm not. Um, this shorting and uh, market arbitrage has always been a very risky game, and uh, it's uh, it, it's just par for the course. Normally, you uh, make some easy money, but uh, once in a while, you get killed on, on, on a trade like this. It's just part of the short-selling uh, game. It's a tiny little bit reminiscent of LTCM, right? I mean, you would have imagined that he either wouldn't leave traces Gabe Plotkin, that is, or that he would have some other kind of trade on that might mitigate any potential danger to this huge short. Well, you know, hedge funds of, of, of this type are, are in the business of, of, of taking risk, of making big directional positions, and you do take your lumps sometime. And, and, and we've seen some of the most successful traders, LTCM is a good example, Amherst is another example, uh, blow up. And, and all it takes is, is, is one bad trade. The people who are low risk, the people who are hedging everything, who get out you know, with stop losses, uh, those people survive, but they don't make the giant profits of a you know, John Paulson. So, Aaron, I mean, short selling and short squeezes have been around since the beginning of financial markets. I guess what's different about this one is the uh, advent and the use of social media, number one, and number two, the zero fee uh, or zero commission trading, which really opens it up to a much, much wider audience here. Are you surprised that Robinhood yesterday and, and some other of these platforms um, chose to limit trading in some of these names you know, I wasn't surprised by Robinhood. Robinhood has been under very intense regulatory pressure, a lot of suspicion. And I think, you know, Robinhood is going to have to protect itself from this kind of thing. I was very surprised that some of the larger and more established uh, brokers did it as well. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the scene in Casablanca where Claude Rains is shocked to find that gambling is going on at Rick's <laughs> Cafe. You know, all these politicians and, and, and people are suddenly shocked to find out they're day traders, they're gambling. There's lots of, you know, uh, irrational volatility in the stock market. This has always been with us. It's just a lot more prominent. You know, Reddit, uh, Reddit and, uh, uh, you know, some of the Robin Hood concentrated and make it more obvious. But, uh, but this, is, this is really an old story that just for some reason has become, you know, metastasized a little bit in 2021. Aaron, would you have approved this trade, or if it started smaller, would you have approved the, you know, the the expansion of it as time went on? I mean, I mean, Craig, the, the Melvin trade is what I'm saying, not not the Robin Hood <laughs> trades. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I was a risk manager for a very different kind of hedge fund, a very, you know, a, a quant fund that, that runs very low risk uh, uh, strategies, very carefully calculated, but. If, if I were hired as a risk manager at a fund like that, which I wouldn't be, I'm not that kind of a risk mm-hmm. manager, but if I were, um, yeah, I would have to. I would have to say, you know, if, if you've got high conviction, you know, you've you got to do it. If you're not willing to take these kinds of risks, you've got to get out of the business. Wow. Aaron, do you expect regulators, Congress, regulators, the SEC to step in here in, in a meaningful way, or, or is this something that might just blow over? Well, 
the problem, I mean, they're all obviously, you know, excited about it. They would love to do something about it, but nobody knows what to do. Um, I suspect what's going to happen is there's going to be, you know, more restriction on small investors. They're going to, and, and this will be damaging. Um, the, the, you know, the people on Robinhood who are playing with $100, this is a great, everybody makes mistakes in the market. You know, you don't want to make these at 50 when you're betting your house and you've got a family to support and your retirement's at stake. Do it at 100 when, when you're a college student, and, and, and this is how you learn about the market. Um, so I think it's great that people are betting small amounts of money they can afford to lose and learning about the market this way. Uh, what is kind of scarier is the billions of dollars by big institutional investors uh, who are, I think, really driving these ups and downs in, in, in these big stocks. But nobody knows what to do about that. And know, everybody to- would love to take the volatility out of the market, but nobody can do it. Just as we speak, Schwab is announcing its adjusted margin requirements in some stocks as well. Briefly, Aaron, where would you want to work next in markets? What's interesting to you right now? Um, I'm actually looking kind of beyond this stuff. I'm thinking, you know, it's sort of the end of the year where it's really interesting. What will the world look like when people are going back to work every day and, 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 and things are reopening? I think we've done some very fundamental shifts over the last 12 months now. Yes. Um, in the economy, and we haven't seen them. They're underground. Well, and, Aaron, uh, you'll have uh, to come back and tell us more about that because it's a, that, that's, a, that's what they call a tease. We'll need <laughs> you back soon. Aaron Brown, former Chief Risk Manager at AQR Capital Management. Sarah Pontek is in studio, Crosshouse reporter here at Bloomberg. And Sarah, just, you know, we could begin anywhere, but I kind of like this headline on our MLive blog. It says, more juice to be squeezed in the land of the shorts. It's a very intriguing headline. Are there still shorts out there and are they hiding right now? Uh, yes, there are still shorts out there. And you can just see that if you look at short interest as a percent of shares outstanding or as a percentage of float on many of these stocks, then you see some of the juice, if we want to call it, being squeezed this morning. GameStop, for example, currently up 59%. Cost, the headphone maker, up 48%. AMC, up 46% as we speak right now. So after we did see the sell-off yesterday, brokerages placing restrictions, now they're has been an easing of those restrictions at the same time you have the likes of Citron Research coming out and saying that they are going to stop their short selling research and we see a comeback in the making for many of these stocks. So Sarah, we see the markets uh, trading off today. Do we have evidence that part of this market uh, movement day-to-day here this week has been, in fact, influenced by some of these hedge funds looking to liquidate some of their bigger positions across the market to uh, stave off some of the losses on these shorts? Is there evidence to that effect? So that, that is the understanding right now. Uh, as a loose proxy, if you look at an ETF that trades under the ticker GVIP, you can see that over the one, two, three, four, five, six of the seven last days have been lower. Wednesday, a drop of 4.3%. Today, we also see it down eight-tenths of a percent. My colleague, Lou Wang, has actually written a lot about this too, and she's gotten data um, from Goldman Sachs Prime Brokerage Unit. Uh, and what it shows is that outflows from hedge funds and degrossing has actually been happening 
happening at, at the fastest rate since October mm. of 2014. So there is some evidence that shows that hedge funds have had to de-risk, and you can see it in certain pockets of the market, particularly like this ETF, which tracks favorite hedge fund long positions. Not only have they been attacked on the short end of their book, they're having a hard time on the long end of the book too. Sarah, explain to us a little bit more about the Citron research decision. I presume they're still going to short stocks. They're just not going to publish their research. Is that it? It had been open before. And then as part of that question, does that leave us open to to fraud? Like, for example, Enron and all of these other major fraudulent instances that we may not have found out about if there hadn't been short sellers. So what, what Citron said uh, in their announcement was that they will focus on giving long side multi-bagger opportunities <laughs> for individual investors. Now, I'm sure we'll get more information. My understanding is that, yes, they're just not going to publish the research. Um, but then again, we're still, this is still developing. I'm sure we'll get more information. Um, but that's the issue right now. Why would any short seller want to be an activist short that publishes their short list if they know that a Reddit community with now 6 million users is just going to gather to try to create a short squeeze uh, and hurt their position. We know that the likes of Citron, other hedge funds that had short positions on some of these stocks have, have suffered billions of dollars worth of losses this week. And you see that culminating in Citron's decision today, halting 20 years of their short selling analysis. So uh, unsure what this truly means. And also going forwards, we know this is now being looked at very closely, not just on Wall Street, not just on Reddit, but in Washington, D.C. and the SEC is looking into this as well. So the question really is, is there going to be new regulation that comes out from this saga? And two, if so, where is it going to focus? What are the changes that can actually be made? And you wonder if any of that will fit on the short seller side of the equation. Well, because Paul, I mean, the likes of Jim Chanos has done a lot of good for the market over sure. the years. I, it I would agree. be an awful pity to see people like that just go into, into the corner and hide. I agree. I think it's revived kind of this discussion we've had from periodically over the years, you know, since for a long time about the value of short selling. Is it a valuable, um, you know, is it a valuable practice in the marketplace? And uh, while a lot of people think no, there's a lot of people that says just like you were saying, Vani, that it does uh, it, it does do a lot for market integrity. Sarah, one of the issues I was looking at was so many of these companies are seeing their stocks, you know, rally so much. Are any of these companies coming to market trying to sell stock and take advantage? of this? Uh, they certainly are. There's a story on the terminal right now with the headline, Reddit favorites eye stock sales after retail fueled rallies. And I mean, you can't really blame some of these companies for doing so. They're taking advantage of market like they're taking advantage of capital markets. Uh, American Airlines, for example, announced plans to sell up to $1.1 billion of shares. Uh, we've also seen Sundial Growers, which has been another one of these favorites lately that's been a part of the mania, which is a pot stock. Uh, they announced a $100 million stock sale at a discount to yesterday's closing price. So certainly companies are taking advantage of this. This happened earlier in the week as well with AMC uh, taking advantage uh, of the pop in their share price. Says yeah. They raised $305 million. So you can't really blame these companies for doing so. They're taking advantage of, of an opportunity.
Yeah, that's for sure. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. We have to talk to you next week as well about various other things, including the dollar and the VIX. I mean, which actually I had so other seen, parts of the market, Vani. We have yeah. to besides GameStop, we have to focus on other parts of the market. Cross asset, exactly. Did you see the VIX up to twenty nine today, Paul? Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, Tom uh, Keen uh, really tracks the VIX uh, very closely. He? He's yeah, pointed, yeah. pointed that out this morning. And uh, But it just goes to show that, you know, again, the volatility, the uncertainty in the market, Vani. Yeah, for sure. Sarah Ponzai, cross asset reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you so much. I do want to point out that the 10 year yield has absolutely just flown up there as well. We're back at 108.08. We were below one yesterday. Yep. So this volatility is really across the market. And uh, crude oil as well, while we're looking at it is very close to $53 a barrel. Yeah, and it w I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Bitcoin up at 11.5%, $3,800 is now <laughs> trading at, you know, north of $37,000. fine if we didn't. <laughs> this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.